0: Wow, so uh, hearing that passage read out loud, it really, it's kind of stunning, isn't it? Um, It's definitely not PC. Doesn't there sound like there's a lot of sexism going on in this passage? I mean, doesn't it feel a little bit like uh, some rich man wrote this for the church? You know, it does sound like that. We got our work cut out for us. And uh, I want to start it like this. So what is your impression of Christianity? What is your impression of Christianity, perhaps, as it's been conveyed to you in the world that we live in? What is your impression of the gospel? Well, I hope, uh, at the very least, you've gotten the message that it does involve a personal relationship with God. That God is not a spirit it. It's God is a spirit person. It means to be forgiven. Because God rightfully, being our maker, made us for a purpose. and, And in our honesty, we look around the world and we we have, as Christians, a diagnostic that, that transforms and transcends the outward, human-to-human kind of diagnostic. Because we know, ultimately, it's a diagnostic that wants us to deal with our hearts, and particularly, our relationship with our God. How to be reconciled with God is the first of all successive reconciliations with humanity. I hope you know that this forgiveness as related to the gospel is is by grace, not by our performance. It's it's based on, on the character of God who wills to forgive, who desires to forgive. It's in his nature to forgive and to do so not in any way bound to our works, but for the mere good pleasure of forgiving only left for us to receive it by faith. All of that's true. But then we come to the passage like this. And it's in the context of 1 Timothy described as one of those passages that are according to the, quote, pattern of sound words, which we are to follow in the life of the church. It's handed down to us by the Apostle Paul, an apostle... His authority given to him by Christ immediately to be, as with the other apostles, the foundation of our faith by virtue of the fact that they have have built this foundation upon the cornerstone of Christ. And so it's strange that we come to a passage like this and out of the world, isn't it, and and it's a, it's a passage that in some ways reads more like a, I don't know, a deacon or an elder seminar. It exposes that Christianity is nitty-gritty, though. It's very nitty-gritty. It involves difficult realities as a result of living in a community. That is to say that immediately we're just struck with the fact that being a Christian is to be in community a community that now is exhorted to take seriously the commands of Christ to bear one another's burdens, to love one another, to give one to another, to share both our inward and outward graces, to fulfill both the inward and outward needs of our brothers and sisters. That's true Christianity. And now we come to a passage that honestly, here again, would I have ever in a million worlds preached this sermon today if it weren't for a commitment just to read the Bible and to read it all the way through? We're in this book study of 1 Timothy, and yep, I woke, I, I, and literally sometimes I have no clue what I am going to preach before the week I'm looking at it, and that was true. I'd forgotten. We'd had a couple of other sermons, as you know, on Missions Week and some other things, and I kind of came back to Timothy on, oh, well, I, I said OC word. I don't think I don't know if that's bad or not. But that's what I said. Oh, crap. You know, I didn't want that this week. Uh, but it's turned out to be interesting, and I'll try to share that with you. But clearly, uh, I just think it's going to be significant for us to understand that the church is called to wrestle with difficult issues The fact is that we're called to bear one another's burdens, and more and more this becomes real as we wrestle with the limited assets, human, financial, and et cetera, and with having a gospel-centered understanding of how to help one another out. How would the gospel inform that? Today, therefore, we're going to consider what it means to honor those who are part of our community that the world might be tempted to dishonor. Particularly, it's those who are needy in some sense, who are poor, who are destitute, and yet being restored in the dignity and the image of God. How then would we do this in order to restore one another holistically and fully? By dishonored, therefore, I don't mean the dishonorable. I mean, again, those who we the church, or the world tends to dishonor. What then does it mean to honor the widow? And who exactly is the widow in 1 Timothy 5? And what category of person are we now talking about universally in the life of the church as here represented by the widow? These are some of the questions we're going to look at. But Let's pray first. So God, we need your help. Uh, We bring all kinds of questions to a passage like this, we confess it it, it looks sexist, it looks pejorative in some ways, it takes for granted things that today we don't take for granted, and so Father, help us to be honest as we hear your word spoken to us afresh, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's just start out with where the passage starts in verse 3, and it says, honor widows who are truly widows. Now that caught your eye, didn't it? That's a loaded sentence. Evidently, not all widows are for the purpose of this passage, widows. At, there's a widow who doesn't qualify in a certain sense to be treated like the widow of this passage. And notice as well that It is a theme that repeats itself three times in our passage. It comes again in verse 5, She who is truly a widow. Verse 16, Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so clearly this is the purpose of of the passage, is to give instruction about how to bear one another's burdens and to do so related to those who are truly widows. And then there's this word honor. Honor the true widow. What is meant by honor? Well, immediately you would put into that word an English synonym, which would be things like, well, to respect, to dignify, to honor. And that would be true. That's exactly what the word means. But we begin to see there's something else going on here. And clearly that's right because this passage is found in the context of a series of passages that is speaking this word honor. In fact, it goes right after this passage to speaking about how we're to honor elders in the church. The word honor again. And then we begin to see exactly what's happening in this passage a little more clearly. Because it goes on, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of what? Double honor. Double honor. What is that? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And so the laborer deserves his wages. What is double honor? It's the honor of treating someone with respect and dignity. And it's an honor that is given to them when you give them what they are worth in wages. That you give them the financial means to live outwardly in a manner that is dignified, commensurate to the inward dignity that they enjoy being in the image of God. That's what's going on there, and that's exactly what's going on here. This financial aspect, notice for instance, verse 9 the widow, we're told, is to be enrolled. There is a list. There's a ledger, and somehow we're talking about the kind of honor that would would enable her to be enrolled on this ledger, a list. And as you go through it, it begins to become clear that this double honor is in view. What does it mean to honor those that might be dishonored in our world who are in the midst of the church? What would it be to really dignify them versus to patronize them? You see the questions that are starting to get raised here that are much more gospel than you think. Okay, so notice then, seeking to distinguish the true widow relative to those who ought to receive double honor. It begs the question then as to how we're to distinguish the true widow from the, I guess in this case, false widow. Evidently for the purpose of this financial assistance. There are widows, and then there are widows. Now notice next, moving pretty quickly, I know. Who exactly is this? And particularly, I want you to keep your eye on the question, what categorically are we addressing in the person of this widow? Does the widow here represent, in a more symbolic way, other categories of people who would share the true widow's plight? I think I'm going to show you that the answer is yes. But but first of all, let me just notice in the passage that Paul will give three qualifications. He will, in other words, who is the true widow? Well, here there are three distinguishing marks. You ready? These three distinguishing marks for the widow, each of which designates a distinct social status in the life of the church. Now let me try to uh, back up a little bit. In the ancient Near East, and particularly if you look at the Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, you begin to discern that there are these three classes of widows. This might help us understand Paul here. There is the widow wife, that is a widow whose husband has died, but with a son, who has redemptive, the redemption rights in her husband's ancestral estate, which he exercises through her son. Yes. The Bible and the times of the Bible is a patriarchal world. And that patriarchal world was a world where there was an economic system tied to the family. Her status in the life of a family was her economic status, to put it bluntly. Family was the economic system. There wasn't in that day a private small business, if you want to put it in an incorporation sense. There was not this person, corporation. It was all the family. The family was the job. The family was where you did your work. Except for those particularly who would be working for the king or the emperor. But the the context here is clear. And we'll just have to get beyond the fact that this is a first century passage. And pull the principles out of it. So there is this widow wife whose husband has died, but she has a son, and therefore she is not destitute. There is the wife of the dead, who is a widow whose husband had died before fathering an heir to exercise the redemptive rights to his ancestral holdings. The law of the Levirite, in Deuteronomy 25, for instance, explains this. For example, it applies to the widow of of this status, and Ruth is described this way in Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Someone who's widowed, but without son. And then finally, there is the destitute widow, whose deceased husband had no ancestral land. It is that, it is that is linked with the orphan, often in Scripture. You'll see the phrases come together, the widow and the orphan. So which widow are we talking about here in our passage? Well, it's not the widow with family. Notice verse 4. But if a widow has a children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. In other words, go and, and participate in the economy of that household. You still have a job. You are still doing a dignified work. That's verse 4. So it's not the widow with family in one of those two of three categories, but it is the widow who is truly destitute. She who is truly a widow is left all alone, verse 5, we're told. And therefore, she is now not putting her hope, literally, I think here it means both her inward but also her outward hope. She is not putting her hope on a family, but she has to now rely on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day that is bearing, putting her, casting her burdens upon God, this person because she has no one else to cast her burdens on to who have a real relationship to her in that family system economics of the first century. Are you getting this? Notice the word here, to the family, verse 8. It warns families. We often take this right out of context, by the way. I hear people say this all the time. You know, we think about our parents, we think about our brothers sisters, and in an unqualified way, of course, I've got to do this, 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 this. Well, just on a side, I hope you're getting the message that, and I'm going to show it to you right now in a minute, that this passage relates to all kinds of ways that we want to, assist and bear the burdens of one another. This passage, as you're going to see, relates to how you assist your children, how you raise them. It's going to relate to how you relate to your family, but most especially for the sake of Paul, who envisions this new polis, this new city of God that he describes as the church, the household of God. That this household, now remember household, has pregnant meaning now. It's not your little nuclear family. It's your livelihood. It's your job. It's your community. It's your passion. It's where you do your work with dignity. And so there's a note to the family. Basically, it's the note to say, don't you dare cast out a destitute person in your family. Notice how it says it. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse even than an unbeliever. Now, this is significant because Paul is envisioning in a society that's not like the way the world does things. If we dig a little deeper, we begin to discern that the world does not dignify the destitute, at least in the first century context. And perhaps we could even apply it today that, that there may or may not be, even in, in the first century, by the way, you know, in the, the kings, particularly in the Old Testament, were responsible for destitutes who had no family. So there was a sense of, of a civil responsibility to the destitutes. But Paul here, I think, is getting at the double honor. What would it mean to give this person double honor? That is, to de- dignify them as a person in the manner in which you now will provide for them economically. That's the question that is emerging here. Now, so clearly we're talking about that last of the third widows, the destitute. The destitute as then to categorically be related, I'm arguing now, to all categories of persons who find themselves destitute. Now you say, Pastor, you've taught us Show me that in Scripture. I will. Psalm 68.5. Notice how these two words come together. God is the father of the orphans and the protector of the widow. Synonymous. James 1.27. This is a long tradition. I won't read all the Scriptures. That was an Old Testament example. Now go fast forward to the New Testament. Religion, according to James, is pure and undefiled before God the Father. And it is this. Quote, To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That is to bear their burdens. To keep oneself unstained from the world. And so those who are destitute, those who are without family, that is an economic system, wherein they can fulfill their imago dei destiny and work, with their own hands, in the words of Paul and Thessalonians, that they might be self-sufficient. That's the goal. That's what we want everyone to be able to do. The dignity of being self-sufficient. And that sounds almost counter-Christian in some ways, in the way that we've kind of screwed this thing up. But find me a person who is in debt, or who is a recipient... Of, of non-dignified financial support, I put it that way. And you will find a happier person who gets up in the morning who knows themselves to be participating in God's economy. And that's what's going on here now. You see, it goes on to say those destitute are those who are unable to get a family, which is to say, in modern days, they're unable to get a job. For whatever reason, they're unable to provide for themselves. And so you see that in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, I I don't think anyone's going to like this passage or, or, or even appreciate it. I shouldn't say like, but appreciate it. Until you've been in a real live community trying to deal with all the real live needs of that community with limited resources. And then you begin to realize, wow, the scripture's really cool. I mean it's really taken this seriously to bear one another's burdens. It's not these little cheap cliches that are thrown out. But man, it's tough, it's hard. What would it look like really to do this? Because the fact of the matter is there's a distinguishing here. We've got to figure out who are really destitute who, therefore, really need the assistance of the church in a manner that can dignify them. And it's not going to be viewed as less loving to dignify those who can, even if you come alongside them to help them. That's the point he's making here if you translate from family systems economy to, of course, uh, a more capitalistic society that we live in today. He envisions this person who now has lost her husband but who has a family of still being a vital part of the economy and in her own dignity participating in the life of that family making sure the family knows that it's their obligation and make sure that she has a place in their economy that's pretty cool therefore the section begins with a concern that the church give proper recognition to those who are really in need i might add that this concern for the widows and the orphans is, a, is an incredibly uh, rich tradition in the Old and New Testament. You can go back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 22, Deuteronomy 24, 19, Job 29, Psalm 68, Isaiah 1. It goes all the way through into Acts chapter 6, how they, they brought all their, their, their things to the, to the life of the community of God, and they were distributed according to those who had need. It's a rich tradition. Of grace-based, dignifying-based, bearing one another's burdens, restoring us to the image of God. And so the first thing we've learned about this widow is that she or he or anyone is a destitute. Absent the capacity to work with their own hands in some meaningful manner, to provide for themselves. There could be all sorts of reasons for that. Second, a true widow, and this will go a little quicker, for the sake of double honor, that is respect, dignity, and financial system, well, it needs to be someone here in the context of the widow, an older person. It literally tells you 60 years or older. Now, I don't know that the 60 years is is the magic button um, in the sense that, that he's addressing here a specific concern in their particular community. Again, the idea here is that this person is now incapable of, of basically getting a job, i.e., you can't get married in a patriarchal society, or it would be close to heart to do that. So therefore, we have this, this, this thing here where, where it's, it's got to be a younger person, or not a younger person, that she might be enrolled. Otherwise, she is to get a job, get married. And number three, the true widow for the sake of double honor, that is respect and dignity and financial assistance, is, and I'll put it in summary fashion, is a member in good standing in her church, or his church, or whatever, again, categorically. You see that in verse 5 all the way through verse 11. Those who are truly a widow are left all alone, destitute that is. And has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted. In other words, has devoted herself to every good work. Summary. No, not a perfect person. Paul's going to deal with sin in all of these passages. You have to read this passage in light of other passages. Sin is present in the life of the congregation. Even John, the other apostle in First John, says, "If you think you're without sin, you're a liar." He says, "We all have sins. I read for you this morning an absolution from Paul in Romans, how the ways we all have sinned. So we know that Paul's not saying, "Hey, man, she's got to be just, you know, a saint in the way we use it today, or he or she or the kid, or whatever this person is. Again, don't just think now she or widow of a husband. This person is a member in good standing. Now, why? Why would that be another qualification? Well, again, this is about dignifying. This is a a manner of giving assistance to, to empower a person. Not to enable a person, because the Bible believes, as I hope we all do, that that we were made in the image of God, and that image is, is less some kind of a biological description or even constitutional decision, like intellect and all that. That, that image of God is that we were all born priests. I, I talked about that last week in the sermon. We're priests, and therefore do this in a manner that she can continue to fulfill her role as a priest before God and the world. And so we have this incredible passage. Now I want us to step back. I hope I've given you at least some exegetical notes. What is going on here? Right? I pulled a quote from Richard Hayes used to be here at Yale Divinity School. Now, I think he's still down at Duke. I'm not sure. Maybe he's left. But he, he wrote uh, this little book called Ecclesiology and Ethics. Ecclesiology being a word for the church, uh, the understanding of the church. Let me read a, a, that, that quote for you again, because what's happening here is quite beautiful. If we step back and think about it. Because he goes on to describe how Paul develops his account of the new community in Christ as a fundamental theological theme in his proclamation of the gospel. That's something that we need to rediscover today. How the church is an essential element of the gospel. Because to have Christ as head and not have Christ as body is to have no total Christ at all. And that body is the nitty-gritty part of Christianity. We come together. We take vows together when we join together as a church. Vows to, and in so many words, bear one another's burdens to care for each other. It's like a spiritual marriage of sorts. There's an amazing power here that's being envisioned that we've lost today in this highly individualized, me-and-God-style Christianity. Indeed, the focus on community is part of the gospel itself. How so? He asked. Well, if you ask, What is God doing in the world in the interval between the resurrection and, and his parousia, his coming again? the answer must be given, for Paul at least, primarily in ecclesial terms, that is, in communal terms. God is at work through the Spirit to create communities that prefigure and embody the full, holistic reconciliation and healing of the world. This church is to be a light in the midst of darkness according to Christ. He goes on to say to be in Christ in the Lord, in the spirit means to be in the community of Christ. That's pretty radical. If I say, oh, that man, he's really in the spirit. Oh, that, that, man, that, that woman, she's empowered in the Spirit. It's always individualized. Go read your Bible. It's amazing. In the Spirit, temple of God is plural. It's in the Spirit, that in the context where the Spirit is alive and at work, acting in, with, and through the body of Christ in the world. To be discerned by and for the community. In other words, hence the will of God how we ask the question, Lord, what is your will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? God, what am I supposed to do with my money, with my time, with my passions and ambitions? You know, I warn you, we're going to be coming right back down to our knees in a minute. Here's the way that, again, Hayes describes what Paul is saying. He says, hence, the will of God is always to be discerned by and for the community not by individuals in isolation. Wow. Imagine how that would change the way we live our lives. When I think to myself I belong to my family my Christian family let's say entitled with the gram G-R-A-H-A-M gram. But I am also in the spirit not just biological. That's, that's superficial compared to in the spirit. I share the DNA spirit of Christ with you. And you with me. What would it mean to understand the nitty gritty of the gospel and the way that Paul here is fleshing it out? Where now I'm expected as a Christian to participate in the dignification of those who are often found undignified in outward ways. Now, if you get beyond the platitudes and the cliches, you're going to see this passage as good news. You're going to go, boy, I sure hope before I give up that maybe vacation. I sure hope before I give up that kind of financial resources that I have. I sure hope that before I give my time, before I do this, before I do this, I sure hope that it really is participating in the gospel. It really is transformative in the way and the manner in which it's done so as to respect empowerment, transformation, of image. And that is what is happening here. For us our moral action is never a matter of an isolated actor choosing from among a variety of abstract ideas on the basis of how inherently good or evil that idea may be. That's not real. That's not corporal. That's not flesh on flesh, is it? That's the kind of stuff you can shout on the road in an abstract way and get a false sense of empowerment what it really involves is doing something giving something yourself money and to give it is power notice I said money is power I didn't say who's getting the power There is a way in which we can give money, and it is empowering me. There's a way that we can give time, and it's empowering me. Let me try to give you an illustration. About, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, I can't remember, my my daughter was a freshman in college. And, you know, she was pretty far away, and so it was pretty hard for me to get out there. But I made a commitment, you know, when she went that, that I'm going to take at least one trip a year. We'll go together with Lisa and all, but I was going to take this one daddy trip a year, and I'm going to take my daughter out to eat, and we're just going to have a date. So it came upon the time when we had organized for that, and I came flying in. As it happened, I went over to the house where she lived, and there sat a guy that I had actually gone to school with in college. Um, He's a really wonderful guy, very godly. Um, He's a very wealthy guy things have gone well for him in his business and rightly so he's he's just an, he really is a great 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 guy so we went out to eat and then we got to the table and can you imagine what's about to happen you know there's the pastor and you know we all know pastors aren't very wealthy they don't have much power Now I'm not I'm being a little facetious I don't think you think that necessarily but somehow something happened it started off quite fine. We're there, we're good. And then this person says, you know, oh hey, I'm 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 getting this. And I said, Well, that's really great. And I really mean it. I thought it was very sweet, nice gesture, no problem. And I said, that's all right. You know what? I really appreciate it, but I'd like to get this. And then he insisted and insisted. And insisted again. Meanwhile, our two daughters are sitting over there going, you know, like, what's going on? This is getting weird, you know. What is this, two machos trying to fight it out? You know, what's going on? And I mean, I was praying, and I was thinking, and I'm going, God, what do I do here? You know, part of me says, Preston, just, you know, I don't get my kudos. I don't get my esteem from wealth or giving money or, or paying for your bills and all that kind of stuff. So so just just, just give, give the dog a bone, you know, kind of thing. Let's just let it go. Let's Let's be peace. But then I... I, at least, and I could be wrong, I don't know, but, but then I thought, how undignifying that is for my daughter. You know, her dad came to take her out for a date. And by dang it, I'm going to take her out for a date. And so finally I tried to explain, I said, blank, you know, I really appreciate it, but this has got to stop. I mean, I literally had to, either my daughter, we're just going to go over there and eat I guess, but... Can you just let it rest? I came and flew in to take my daughter on a date, and I want her to know how much I love her. And I want her to know her dad took her out. We only get to do it once a year. Now, what happened in that transaction? It was about power. No doubt about it. And there's a way to give that humiliates There's a way to give that dishonors. There's a way to give that that robs someone of the power of their decisions and the power of their will and the power of their industry. We want to raise our children to be empowered people, don't we? That is to say, we want them to see and to feel and to experience the consequences of the decision so they know, for better or for worse, when I make a decision, It's powerful. So what do we do? We allow certain consequences. Even if they're ones that we don't like them to have. For their sake. Yeah, we put that little net under it. That's the the magic. Where's the net? You know, how far do we let them fall? And that's always the hardest thing for a parent to figure out. But But there's space. And it starts when they're very, 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 very young. If you're a good parent of empowering your child. Do you get a sense for what's going on here? We are that kind of community in the world. We are the kind of community that wants to give power to others rather than use others to give power to ourselves. Now, this conversation could go horribly wrong if I start now to meddle in policy A versus policy B versus policy C in our world political environment. That's not my interest here. There is a principle, though, that is. However, that's to be manifest. And so money is power. And that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is power. And so there are three things I'll leave you, and I'm going to have to do it very, very quickly. What does this tell us about double honor? Well, one is we're going to always distinguish crisis from chronic related needs. You do that because very quickly someone's in a crisis and you, be, you give financial assistance as you should, but there's no end game. It's like giving someone an a, a, a opioid or something For pain, but not having an end game. That's not empowering, is it? Money is power. Money is an opioid. Time is power. Time is an opioid. How much can you give? Or if it begins to rob them of their dignity. That's what Paul is concerned about here. And so that's principle number one. You don't ever do for someone what they can do for themselves. You put the context together so that they can do it for themselves. I say that to people or particularly who, who have wealth, who have time, whatever that is. Oftentimes, we do things out of guilt. And guilt is always trying to give us ourselves power. We want to do it out of love. We want to do it in a manner that to as much as possible, we can not be the focus of the giving, but that they could receive in a way that they become proud. They become, let's let them be tempted with pride, if you will, in a way that's like that. You limit one-way transactions to emergencies, and otherwise you seek for mutual two-way one-anothering transactions there's a man who picks up our, our trash before the trash guy comes. You know, he co- collects bottles and things. He's an amazingly empowered person. I've gotten to know him. I go out there. We kind of make sure we leave all of our stuff there for him to get. And I talked to him one day. I said, you know, do you have a home? Nope. I'm homeless. He was dang proud of it. I live there. I have a little place over there, and I would have it all together. I said, well, well you know, how do you live? Well, I, I work eight hours a day. <laughs> really? Yeah. Picking up these bottles. It's enough, he says. Now, I would rather him not live under a bridge. I'd like to find a way to kind of move this out, but I even, I even talked about it. I said, well, you know, there are ways maybe we could, you know. No, 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 no. Why? This man, he gets up at 3.30 in the morning, and he boasts of it. He is an empowered man. He lives a lifestyle that to me looks dishonorable. To him, it's honorable. It's the difference between where power is located. It's amazing. It was an object lesson for me. I worked with just the opposite. As many of you know, I spent many years in the inner city. And people who have no power... Whose choices sometimes have no real consequence. Whose life and bread is unempowering. Fathers who walk out the back door every Easter when, or, or, or Thanksgiving when the church brings the turkey and the gifts. And his child is happy and he wants his child to be happy but he's sick to his stomach. Because he has been just excluded. That's disempowerment. On it goes. Concept number two is it's always here for the Christian church based. We believe that the true empowerment is a holistic empowerment. That to be restored to God is to be restored to ourselves. To be restored to ourselves is to be restored to God. There is a real corporal spirit connection. To touch my body is to touch my spirit. There is a connection. That's why we take sex so seriously touch your body is to touch your soul That's a very sensitive tender thing to touch and it must be treated with great care the kind of care that grace and grace alone can manage concept number three this holistic empowerment not only is it church based in the life of the community of faith, where someone's participating in the life in a full and holistic way with pride and dignity of being part of the body and their work. Gospel, of course, is inward. I'll leave you with this quote. It's as if Paul is saying, Christians, just be the church. And if you know what Paul's meaning by that, be the body of Christ. Be the kind of love, be the kind of mercy that dignifies people. And the church, therefore, will be a sample of a kind of humanity which, for example, economic and racial differences are surmounted. Only then will it have anything to say to the world that surrounds it about how that difference must be dealt with to honor our brother and our sister. Amen.